Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Bob Burnett, Chairman and CEO at Barefoot Mining. Barefoot focuses primarily on what they call wild mining, or small to mid-scale Bitcoin mining operations using independent or off-grid energy resources. Their approach is not only contributing to the monetization of remote or stranded energy resources, which otherwise likely would have remained unproductive, but is also helping to diversify and decentralize the Bitcoin mining ecosystem, making it more resilient to various potential risks and attacks. Bob is another great example of someone who was reinvigorated with purpose as a result of learning about Bitcoin. And I'm grateful for the work he and the team are doing to protect the network and contribute to the innovation taking place in the rapidly evolving Bitcoin mining and energy industries. Enjoy. All right. Well, here we are, Bob. Great to meet you. Thanks for joining me. Great. Nice to meet you, John. Thanks for having me. So um, I've been very interested in what's been happening in the mining space over the last, especially like the last two years. I never had a, a yep. huge interest in it before. But one, the scale of things is getting, well, very big, you know, at this point. But also there's this really interesting recognition that uh, Bitcoin mining is probably going to have a massive influence on energy companies and the energy markets generally right. as we move forward. There's such a interesting th synthesis there. And, and by virtue of the fact that a lot of people in the space have uh, put out a lot of great pieces of writing to help elucidate what that relationship is now and what it might look like in the future, I think it's brought a lot of eyeballs to what's going on with mining and energy and the overlap there. And then, of course, you've got this kind of burgeoning hobbyist industry where people are starting to tinker with miners and all sorts of cool projects are emerging out of that. So I really, there's two kind of aspects of the Bitcoin mining space. There's the big public massive project sort of thing with a lot of hash power. And then there's the more, for lack of a better term, scrappy uh, projects that are looking for more independent, but also more smaller scale, but distributed energy sources and trying to, you know, uh, bring the market to the molecule effectively by putting Bitcoin right. miners on top of these energy sources and monetizing them, which I think is what you do, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So perhaps for people that aren't familiar with you, you could just give us a brief introduction of you and the company. Sure, sure. Well, I uh, first, um, I, I do agree with you that, you know, we have this um, almost polarization uh, in, in mining, where we have this trend toward these massive, large-scale projects, um, which by the way, I refer to elephants. I would divide it into three groups, by the way. I, I, I call them elephants, horses, and rabbits. And um, the rabbits are the home miners, kind of the more hobby class sort of people, which I, I believe perform an important role in the long-term infrastructure. Um, and then there's the elephants, which might be 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts plus kind of size things. And then there's the horses, which um, kind of are in that middle space. And it could be ha a, a half a megawatt, two megawatts, five megawatts, you know, sizes like that. Um, so I, I call that horse class mining. And my company, Barefoot Mining, is focused in that space. And, you know, we can dive into a little more of that. But I think that while <clears throat> everything in moderation is okay, um, but anything in excess isn't, right? And, and I think that... I do have a concern. I'm, I'm not an alarmist. <clears throat> I'm not call, calling for some um, uh, 
you know, sky is falling sort of situation. But I do think, I honestly think there is too much elephant class stuff happening in too concentrative of an area. Um, I also think there is too much grid dependence. And, you know, if you combine those two things, there is kind of a, a long-term threat to the infrastructure. And, and I think, you know, um, I, I think people have, a, I'm, I come from an engineering background. I've, I've done system design for 35 years. And um, when you think about network, things like network design, um, a cellular network, a grid, uh, something of that magnitude, the level of reliability that you have to design to is um, massive. So we, we tend to use these terms. It's called like um, three nines or five nines. Have you ever heard that expression before? No. So what it refers to, so three nines would be 99.9% reliable or effective. And five nines would be 99.999. And so mm. if seven mm -hmm. nines, nine nines, you get the idea, right? Sure. And so <clears throat> I believe what we're trying to design with Bitcoin, you know, we probably have to have about seven nines of reliability, 99.99999, um, I did that right, of reliability. And, and we do right now, we absolutely do. Um, but we also can't think about present terms. We can't think about this year or next year or the end of the decade, because um, at least what I'm in it for, and, I, and I, I believe, you know, knowing a little bit about you, John, you know, I think what we're in it for is for decades and centuries, not for short periods of time. So, you know, we have to think in terms of maybe radical changes in political landscape, radical changes in environmental conditions, rad radical changes in um, uh, political sentiment. And so something designed at, let's say, three nines of reliability over a period like that wouldn't be reliable. <clears throat> so um, I won't, I, I've written an article, for instance, for Bitcoin Magazine, for anybody that wants to get into the gory details, it's called Satoshi's oh. Heel. We'll get in. We'll get into it. I, I've read all your oh. work, so we will definitely hit it. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but you know, so what I what I believe, if if you want to go in deeper, we'll we'll save that for later. But basically, what I believe is we have to have balance across this infrastructure. We have to have the elephants and the horses and the rabbits, all in some semblance of balance, and we have to have what I call wild energy and captive energy in some sort of balance too. They they all form a role. They're all important. They all individually and collectively in balance add to the most reliable network possible. But if one of them gets too, too strong, let's say elephants all on the grid in Texas, if we're way too heavy there, then at some point um, there are conditions upon which the integrity of the network can be attacked. Um, so. Um, so anyway, right. my, my company, which I, I, is a long-winded way of saying, so my company, in part for financial reasons, but also because of what I want to do in terms of, um, you know, my role in terms of helping move Bitcoin along is, is I think by, by developing horse class sites, those kind of medium-ish size sites, and as often as possible, <clears throat> doing them with wild energy sources helps provide that. Yeah. Like I said, we will get more into the threat that your company is attempting to counterbalance or mitigate. But what is your 
<clears throat> Bitcoin story so that we can kind of get up oh. to speed on motivations for how you're attacking all this. Yeah, sure. So um, my background is technical, as I mentioned. Um, I come from a computer design background. So um, if those of you listening can't see me, I'm 58 years old. So I'm, I'm a, a more seasoned veteran, maybe you might say. Um, I started designing laptop computers in 1986, um, arguably the world's first laptop computer, junior member of that design team, but I would argue the world's first true laptop computer. I kind of progressed through that um, in my career, um, ultimately became the chief technology officer at a company called Gateway. So for those of you who, especially in North America, a cow spotted company. So I spent most of my career doing that. Um, I left that in 2004, did some angel investment incubator work, and then in 2017, got a phone call from an ex-Gateway uh, acquaintance who said, hey, Bob, can you design some Ethereum mining equipment for me? Uh, at that point, um, I had had very limited exposure you know, to our space, um, but I looked at it as a computer guy, said, okay, sure, I can build these for you. He wanted... He wanted 300, um, uh, you know, Ethereum mining rigs, um, each with eight GPUs. So we started a company um, to do that. And we did. And we, we, after servicing and providing those products to him, we started asking other people, would you like some too? Many people said yes, but only if you'll host them for us. So that kind of got us from, you know, system designer to hoster. And then we started taking the profits and using it to buy our own equipment. Now, as a sidelight, I um, also studied economics in school uh, and have, since about 2002, been a pretty ardent Austrian economics kind of geek. And so um, I started looking at Ethereum at the time, which is what we were working on at the time, and realized it didn't really match my philosophical alignment, you know, I, again, I started as a computer guy, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people have that story of starting somewhere else with some shit coin or some, some other place and then wandering in. And, you know, I, I started to see the light. Um, so we not having access to the ASIC, by that, I mean the chip, not the machine. Um, I, uh, reached out to Bitfury. We signed an agreement with Bitfury for, with their mining equipment. Um, they did not have a U.S. distributor at the time. So we became the U.S. distributor of Bitcoin, uh, Bitfury's Bitcoin mining equipment in 2018. When was this? 2018. 2018. So that gave us an entree into, you know, that world. And, and we, you know, over the course of, uh, you know, a year about kind of, de-emphasized the Ethereum side of the business, started focusing on, on Bitcoin. And because of that, um, you know, we st honestly, we still have a lot of the Ethereum equipment. It still runs. Um, the stuff that's ours, we, we run with a, a product called NiceHash, which allows us to generate Bitcoin off of the Ethereum equipment. Um, <laughs> but in terms of new installations, we haven't done... Uh, ethereum equipment for quite a while right and so how did you make the shift from designing and manufacturing machines to finding uh wasted stranded energy and plugging in bitcoin miners to them and also from like a when did the penny drop realizing the importance of the relationship between bitcoin mining and energy generally 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would say it was probably, um, I can't pinpoint an exact moment, but sure. you know, it was a, it was kind of a, a slower realization, but I would say it's about two and a half years ago. Um, probably late 2019 when the realization started hitting me that just providing the hosting itself or doing the mining, we do a lot of self-mining really wasn't enough. And um, you mentioned earlier, you know, controlling from the molecule. And I, I started looking at kind of, if you look at mining or Bitcoin, the way that you would look at manufacturing, you know, it's, it's kind of like becoming vertically integrated in your manufacturing. So if, if, um, if I don't control the energy, then I'm not in complete control or another way to phrase it. Sometimes this maybe is helpful is that, you know, if you're in the mining business and a hundred percent of your mining capability is dependent on a third party selling you something and it's their choice whether or not to do that. You're not self-sovereign, right? So we, we talk a lot about mm -hmm. in Bitcoin becoming self-sovereign. So I'm not saying grid-based mining is all bad. It, 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 there, there's some important pieces of the infrastructure that it can be, but as a miner, you're not self-sovereign if you don't control the energy. If you're dependent on a third party to provide that for you, then you're not in control and that you could wake up any mm -hmm. given day and somebody could just not grant you permission. So it's, it's almost, it's kind of like my extension of, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin in a way, sure. it, you know? So, um, and, so that and was that, go ahead. Was that the ideological reason why you ended up going for the, the type of mining that you decided to go with ultimately? Yes. Yes. To, to become, an and, and I want to point out, we do have some grid-based, we do have some grid-based operations. I'm not a hundred percent, what I would call wild, um, but our, our passion and our direction is toward wild. And <clears throat> I think that um, there's some cost reasons as well, that obviously, you know, you, if you, um, if you control your own energy, if you own whatever that source is, whether that's hydro or you own the natural gas well or you own a geothermal source, whatever it is that, you know, you happen to pursue, then you control the cost structure. And, um, <clears throat> you know, you can sign, uh, you know, power purchase agreements and things like that, and, and you can lock in for maybe some period of time. But I still think you're subject even then, um, if a tax come, if a tax come on mining, put it this way, that I believe one of the main attack vectors will be, you know, things like taxes on energy that, that, um, if, if you're in a state, let's say, or a country that suddenly sours on Bitcoin, they may not just say, we're going to turn you off, but they might say, well, here is here is a tax that we're going to apply. And even if you have a power purchase agreement, well, now you have a tax on top of it. So mm. I think you can start minimizing your exposure to that by controlling the power source. Right. So basically you wanted 
kind of ideologically the network to be made more resilient resilient by contributing hash in this sort of way, but also from a business model perspective, even though scale may be smaller, resiliency is far greater because you're less subject to the machinations of things that you can't control and you wanted to avoid that. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, it, I mean, that's a philosophical debate. Um, obviously, I, I feel passionately about my perspective, but if somebody said, hey, Bob, um, <clears throat> you, can, you can have one 200 megawatts 200 megawatt bot site in location A, or you can have 54 megawatt sites spread out over, you know, six U.S. states and two countries or something like that. I'll pick the latter. And mm-hmm. some of the people will say, Bob, you're nuts because look at all the operational inefficiency you have. And I say, yeah, but look at my resiliency. Look at my ability to withstand by the way, whether that's political, a hurricane, an earthquake, um, and environmental activist attacks. I mean, I think, I think, again, thinking about it over decades, not in individual years, these things are all going to happen, right? Yeah. You know, that, 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 that's when you start, when you start thinking in the five, nine, six, nine, seven, nines kind of level of reliability, that's what you have to think because in any one year, is it likely that a, Katrina scale hurricane is going to take out a huge piece of ERCOT, probably pretty low um, over the course of, let's say, the rest of this century, probably pretty high, you know, mm. and, and even if it's even if it's a 10 or 15 percent chance, that's a pretty high chance. So when I was at Gateway, I'm trying to remember exactly, but, you know, we were producing, I think, at our peak, about 9 million PCs a year. And I, we had about 13 manufacturing locations spread out all over the world, places like Dublin and Kuala Lumpur and three or four in the U.S. And, you know, and, and part of that was logistics, of course, but part of it was also resiliency. Like, hey, if, you know, if a war happens, if, if X happens or Y happens... The likelihood of more than two of those being eliminated at any point in time were were uh, were almost zero, and the ability of the rest of the manufacturing facilities to pick up the slack was very high. Now in Bitcoin, that's not exactly the same, right? You know, you can't one site being down doesn't mean another one suddenly can work harder and make up for it. Although global hash drop, interestingly, if global hash drops. Um, and you still have something going, um, you actually do pick up a higher percentage. So it, it, it is a little bit of an insulator. Mm-hmm. It seems as though, you know, the big, the big centralized miners, you know, mainly public miners, I mean, they're, they're making hay while the sun is shining, right? They're, they're taking advantage of p- perhaps a very unique circumstance where, the cost of capital is artificially low, so they can finance these projects at artificially low costs. Uh, they can buy a bunch of miners. They can get get good purchase prices on them all. They can plug them all in. But as you say, I mean, and, it, and, and also they can, also, of course, raise debt and just buy Bitcoin should they choose to do that in addition to holding Bitcoin on their balance sheet from what they mine. Right. But as you say, I mean, they're beholden to... The jurisdiction in which they operate, they're beholden to a few large locations, they're beholden to the nature and stability of capital markets, which I think we'd both probably say yeah. may become tumultuous in the next one to 10 years. 
um, and many other things. So I guess the question becomes, because they're going to be able to operate more efficiently. That's the whole point of, of the centralization. So are they able, do you think it's possible or is this a trend that's developing that they operate at such a scale and they have so many advantages, financially speaking, that they're able to out-survive the, let's say, wild miners or the smaller operations in good times, right? Because they're so more, they, they're able to be so much more efficient and potentially starve some of them out and how does that dynamic change if we roll into bad times that are not advantageous to the centralized miners? So basically, like, to what degree do they squash out uh, the less centralized alternatives? And how does that? How do you do you see the flux of that balance changing over time? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, John. And and I think I think it's happened already. By the way, so sure, yeah. That, to some degree, for sure. To a large degree, actually. To, is probably yeah, right I think answer. the last two years have been, um, again, I'm, I'm sure I'll piss somebody off that's coming from the you know, bigger, it won't be the first time, but, um, <laughs> you know. The, so here's a, here's a perspective on it. Okay, so I think all of us in the Bitcoin world were, were familiar with the Canelon effect, right? Or Cantillon, mm -hmm. I think, is the pronoun proper way, but okay, it's commonly called Cantillon. To a great degree, that's what the public mining companies have done, is they have mm. used their position to take the rabbit and horse-sized guys and squish them. And I'm not saying they did that maliciously, by the way, so I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody of doing that. And I also believe it's, you know, it's their right to have done this. So I respect that. I think it's a bad move. I think it's against the ethos of what we're trying to accomplish with Bitcoin. Um, but, but what they did is they used their access to these capital markets, to this capital, and they bought, they actually bought way more mining equipment than they can even power on. Um, this may not be accurate as of today, but... Uh, um, a friend of mine, Kevin Zhang from uh, Foundry, had estimated that about 30% of the um, equipment that had been purchased in 2021 was still not on as of about May 1st of this year. So 20%. Yeah, 30%. 30%. 30%. 30 sorry. <clears throat> Even if it's 5%, whatever the number is, that, you know, they haven't. And, and, and what it did was, you know, it drove the cost in the open market for the small and medium-sized guys through the roof to where mm -hmm. the ROIs just didn't make sense, right? Um, and so they've already done that. They've already taken a lot of people out. As a, as a I'm not, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, Big enough to not be small, but I'm not big enough to be big. I would say that's where, <laughs> that's where we are, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so we, because of our relationship with Bitfury, you know, we were able to trudge along. We were able to still get a fair price on our mining equipment and we were able to exist. And there were some others that are in our size space that I think have done okay as well. But, but that is a big threat. And, um, the way it manifested itself was primarily through the mining equipment. You know, just there was just no mining equipment available. And 
then they're not deploying it. I, I'll, I'll also say I'm not a fan of public companies in our space. So I think there are multiple ways in which the big guys go against the ethos. You know, one I mentioned already, you know, they, they, they use this capital access, which is really a manifestation of the fiat system to create a competitive advantage in the Bitcoin system. So this is something a little wonky about that to me. The second thing is it worries me that they hodl so much. And, and I think it's, it's often a proud point, right? I think it's often categorized or characterized as a very positive thing that whether it's, you know, I'm not picking on any of these specifically, but core or marathon or riot or, you know, whomever, you know, they, they mined 940 Bitcoin this month and now they hodl 12,208, whatever the number is. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, if we look at what happened with over time, as they keep accumulating, they really don't have a way to distribute the Bitcoin out to the shareholders. Um, there's, there's no mechanism right now, at least exists, now maybe in the future, but right now there's no mechanism for them to do a distribution in Bitcoin. It's still fiat. It's all fiat based. And if they suffer, <clears throat> um, if, if, if one of them or several of them in conjunction would really be the nightmare, all kind of go off at the same time, we could have situations where really large amounts of Bitcoin come into the market um, be, because there's a bankruptcy, because there is some sort of credit crisis um, within those companies. So that, um, that, that worries me as well. But, you know, the biggest thing that worries me and why I would say I've, I've made a public statement that I will not take my company public ever. And it may constrain my growth, but sure. um, I've been through it already. When I was at Gateway, I was part of the management team that took them public um, in 1993, by the way. And what I saw was it completely changed the culture of the company that public companies you know, by definition, as soon as you sign the dotted line and you're a public company, you're now beholden to a different master. And, and that master measures you on 90-day cycles. It demands performance on 90-day cycles. Um, it, it, it forces certain expectations, again, on a 90-day cycle. And so, you know, what, again, I, I talk about how these companies, I think, go against the ethos. They have to. They're, they're legally and morally obligated to perform on 90-day cycles. And, I mean, that's the ultimate high-time high time preference sort of mentality for a company. And, you know, we're, we're low-time preference people. So, you know, I would, I would rather see my growth constrained and never become a slave to, to that master and then subject myself to that. Sure. And I respect that tremendously. Let me ask you this. I mean, in Bitcoin, we often talk about how Bitcoin as a money and hopefully as a base layer money helps bring back uh, productive and aligned incentives to markets generally, rather than these distorted incentives that are counterproductive to markets and individuals. Of course, Bitcoin is emerging within the, the fiat market and the perverse, distorted, corrupted incentives that 
that characterize that. And so what I'm hearing from you is that there's still there's this massive influence of these fiat incentives, which are driving this somewhat of a bifurcation, or at least the development of a few different methods of attacking this Bitcoin mining industry as a whole. And you mentioned that, you know, they're largely um, not aligned with the ideology or ethos of Bitcoin, at least not as fully as, you know, your approach may be. And of course, we do talk about uh, the principles inherent in Bitcoin a lot in this space, because why are we all here? We're, we're here because of the principles represented in Bitcoin. We want to see them be the dominant incentives in the world because we think that's going to foster a better, a fairer, more prosperous, more peaceful world. However, it seems like over the, over sufficient time, ideology is insufficient to overcome incentives. So how do you see the incentives as they exist today and how they're creating somewhat of a bifurcation between the two methods of going at Bitcoin mining, how do you see that playing out or being resolved or being overcome? That's a, that's a really, really great question. And I don't know that I have a, um, an answer that just clarifies the whole thing because we're in this transition, right? I, I think the reason that this, incentive mix, I like the way that you put that, kind of exists is that we have, if we were all all in a Bitcoin standard already, this wouldn't exist, mm-hmm. right? So we have, we have individuals or, and or groups of, of, of companies who are, are using essentially a flaw in the old system to create an advantage in the new system. So, um, those of us that won't go there for whatever, you know, we feel ethical reasons or, or, you know, control reasons or becoming less self-sovereign, you know, all those sorts of things um, do have issues. Now, I guess the way that I am attacking it is that because the big guys are so focused on the development of very large sites and for what they perceive to be operational efficiency. We'll come back to energy for a little bit. We haven't really talked a lot about energy. So energy doesn't necessarily align itself always with those objectives, right? So if you, if you want 50 megawatts, hundred megawatts, 500 megawatts, whatever it is you're trying to do, and you want to put it all in one site, well, you have to have all the power in one site and it doesn't always lay out that way. And, and if you want to create it from scratch, there's a long lead time for that to happen. So the advantage I think I have and others in this space, whether you're a rabbit or a horse is you can, you can pick up the crumbs and there are a lot of crumbs out there. So I'll give you an example here in a second, but, um, we can go quickly. If you said, hey, Bob, here is a uh, one megawatt power source in the middle of Idaho and, um, and you know, it has a reasonable cost of energy and it's sustainable, would you be interested in that site? I'd say, absolutely, I'm interested. And maybe I can get there in 120 days. Like right now, that would probably be very possible. For me to do. So I can go from point A to point B and I can get something done really, really quickly. Um, and 
it still might be very cost effective. The big guys will just look at that site and say, no, not interested. Right. But you know, they, they may take 18 months or two years to get to a, let's say a hundred megawatt site and it's all or nothing until they get there. And in the meantime, I've strung together, you know, 15 of these one or two or half a megawatt sites. So I think that, I think that that's how I compete is by picking up these morsels where, again, I'm going where, to, where the energy is. I'm going directly to where the stranded energy is, whether that's on grid or off grid, by the way, but I, I can go directly to the source. I can do it quickly and it doesn't have to be massive. Um, and I'll give you an example. So one of the projects that um, we've done, it was actually our first, our first one in the stranded energy area was we identified a, um, an old textile mill that um, used to run on its own hydroelectric source. The, the mill had been in disrepair for 20 years, hadn't functioned for 20 years. But we put a group together. Um, we, we raised a little money. We rehabilitated the hydroelectric infrastructure um, in, the, in the mill um, and brought up a roughly one, little over one megawatt mining site, um, again, b behind the meter, completely off grid. Um, and I'm oversimplifying basically free energy, um, as well. Now there's a lot of maintenance costs of keeping something like that going an older hydroelectric mm -hmm. facility, but those are examples of, I think, things that we can do. And I say, we, I'm talking about the collective, small, the medium size miners, we can go off and we can pursue those sorts of things and do those sorts of things that um, I believe are, are critical to the infrastructure and economically can be very advantageous. Um, again, I, I'm, I guess you'd say we arguably have free energy um, at that site. Mm -hmm. What do you think, there's so much I want to dig into here, but first, what do you think are the risks to themselves of, of the big... Uh, highly capitalized and in many cases, public miners, you know, so we'll explore later the risks to the network and to Bitcoin on a like more broadly, but even to themselves, what do you think the risks are? Cause right now it seems like all the cards are stacked in their favor, but as I alluded to a few minutes ago, that may not always be the case given the shifting landscape, whether it be political, whether it be economic, et cetera. So what do you think are the risks that if you're in that camp, and let's assume you're, you know, you're a good actor, you're a Bitcoiner, you're just following the incentives that are available to you. I mean, yeah. like, like I mentioned this to Michael Saylor last time I spoke to him, but it's like the access to artificially cheap capital, the cost is being borne somewhere by someone, right? And it's probably the people that can least bear it. Yes. But what are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to not play to your own incentives? And if you can access capital and deploy it productively, and then with those proceeds, do things that you think are meaningful or valuable or important, why wouldn't you, you know? So what do you think are the, the threats to themselves of those bigger operations? Well, <clears throat> um, you're absolutely right, by the way, I, I agree with everything that you've said. And, and I did, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure I have a lot of fans in the in, in the bigger companies, I'm sure many of them are fans of me, but I, but I do, I do, as I said before, I respect their right to do this. It's absolutely within their rights to do this. And I don't think any of them are bad people. 
I just, I just think that the incentives are misaligned with our ethos, but that that's my judgment. So there are threats. Um, I, I, one of the reasons I, I, I term the coin elephants for them is that they're easy to hunt, right? So if you, I, I use the term rabbits and horses and elephants for very specific reasons. And, you know, you can, you may be able to hunt an individual rabbit, but you're never going to kill them all. Right. You know, so they're really, really, really important. And same with horses, you know, horse, the reason I use the word horses is they're, they're, they're powerful. They're not massive and they can move quickly. Right. But you know, what's an elephant? It's a, it's a largely immobile, easy to find target. So if I'm hunting to try to do damage to Bitcoin, I'm going to hunt elephants, not rabbits. And so I believe the first thing is they are the bullseye. Um, I have a, a, a term I use called the unholy trinity. So I believe over time, what's happened is three, three factions, the, um, the central banks slash governments being one, the um, environmental activist groups and um, the shit coiners. Okay. And, and I call that the unholy trinity. And I believe that two years ago, they were largely disassociated. None of them liked Bitcoin, but they were largely working independently. But I think what we've seen, especially in the last six months to nine months, is them start to coalesce a little bit. And so, you know, you'll see the Chris Larson Ripple funded, um, let's switch, change the code. What, I think that was what they called it, right? Let's change the yeah. code. Yeah. And, you know, echoed by Greenpeace. You know, and so you start, you start to then see, you'll see um, central banking, politician kind of people quoting crypto experts, often somebody like a Cardano person or a, or a ripple person and saying, well, this crypto expert says there's other ways to do decentralized um, ledgers. Right. And, and, and they start to lend credibility to each other. So kind of coming back to your question, I, I think they will be attacked and, and they'll be attacked um, most likely jurisdictionally and from a public relations standpoint. Um, some of them may try to attack them financially. I think if, if they start showing financial weakness, you may, you may see that some coordinated efforts, um, a la the Luna Terra thing, um, where somebody says, well, company X over here, which is a prominent big miner now has some financial problems and, and let's go see if we can create havoc on their organization by disrupting disrupting the capital associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think they'll suffer from those because they're big and because of what they are both physically, they're, they're physically able to be identified and their financials are able to be identified. I think they will get attacked. I, I hope they all are resilient and, and withstand it well. I don't wish ill on any of them, but, but I think it will come. And again, not thinking this month, this quarter, this year, but think about it in the terms of years and decades, it will come, right? 
Um, look at the personal computer industry, you know, the one that I came out of. Um, and, and the companies of the 90s, you know, we had several multi-billion dollar selling millions of PCs a year kind of companies that by the end of the next decade were all out of business. Mm. And so I don't, I don't see any reason to expect Bitcoin mining industry to be any different. So what happens when these companies start going bankrupt? What happens when they're in financial distress? Um, those are, I think, really important questions. Yeah. And, you know, significant co consolidation also. I mean, you could easily imagine how a lot of the biggest players or a lot of the public ones, I mean, they could consolidate over the next couple of years into one big player even, you know, and, and what would be the implications of that? Yeah. And it, yeah. And it could get worse. No, they could become acquisition targets for utility companies or financial institutions right. or things like that. Probably some combination of all those things, but, but, um, the world, the odds that in the year 2030, the industry landscape looks similar to today are pretty low. Sure. Tell me the process that you go through with barefoot from identifying an energy source to putting financing together, to, uh, building out the site, maintaining the site and then operating. You know, I'm, I'm curious yeah. about how that whole process looks. Okay, sure. All right. Well, I'll start with this. Um, when you're trying to put together a deal um, to bring up something new, there's, there's always three things. There's the energy source, there's the mining equipment, and there's the capital. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned having done this for five years now is one of them is always hard. It may shift which one is hard. But, and as soon as the one that's hard starts getting easy, another one almost by definition get, starts getting hard. Like you can't, right. you can't ever easily solve it. Right. So, um, for a long time from an industry perspective, you know, it was the mining for the, for the last, you know, two years, it's been the mining equipment was hard and energy was medium and capital was pretty easy. Um, I think we've shifted now to where the mining equipment is not that difficult, still a reasonable amount of capital uh, available, um, even with the depressed, by the way, that's been very encouraging, by the way, I think if you're looking for like silver lining in the price depression is we haven't seen any less interest in investment partners, um, at all. Like if, if anything, they, they start to understand that maybe this is a good time to invest. Right. But getting back to your question, so we got those three things. For us, what we do is we say, you know, we start with um, jurisdictional and community acceptance. So there's basically a whitelist and a blacklist, right, of places that we would mine in. And, um, you know, the blacklist includes places like New York that I have no interest in being in the state of New York because we've just seen too much activity. And even though like they, they had that bill to try to kill proof of work, which was asinine, but I don't have any interest in going there. You know, when, when the, the government and at least factions in the community don't embrace, you know, us being there because there are plenty of places like Texas and Oklahoma and North Dakota and South Dakota that are very happy to have us. So, 
Wyoming. We're, you know, that's where we're, that's where we're looking. Um, I've spent time in El Salvador. So like El Salvador is actually an interesting one because we, we, we know we have the jurisdictional and community acceptance, but then it, then the next stage is um, the sustainability and reliability of the energy. And um, they're, they're reasonable. Um, I was just down in El Salvador. I got back about two weeks ago. Um, and you know, I met with the National Energy Council there. And what's interesting about El Salvador is that just recently they brought on a fairly large natural gas production area. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but they've got about 40% of the production of energy in their country is now natural gas, uh, local natural gas sources. And they just, when they brought that capacity online very recently, like matter of weeks, um, it crossed them over from being a net energy importer to an exporter. So again, interesting, by the way, just to put scale in perspective, the country of El Salvador runs on just over one gigawatt. So, um, when, when you, when you read about like these elephant kind of sites and you see somebody saying, we're going to do a 400 megawatt site, a 600 megawatt site, a one gigawatt site, you're talking about the energy of an entire country. So, um, wild. you know, because I think those numbers, they don't always resonate with people, right? You, you, you hear what, what really is a megawatt or a hundred megawatts or whatever, you know? So there's a country of six and a half million people. That's a, that's what that means. Um, so in their case, the energy is now available. So the second piece is there, but the third piece is the one I haven't been able to solve there yet. I'll, I'll be honest with you, which is cost where um, they can now take that excess energy and they can sell it to other surrounding countries for 14 to 16 cents per kilowatt hour. So obviously I'm, you know, if, if I'm willing to pay that, they'll sell it to me. But right now that, that part doesn't work. Now I'm working on some wild stuff there. Hopefully that'll come together. Um, but wild, wild energy in other countries is different. So like in the United States, the way mineral rights work, the way water rights work, some of those sort of things, there's a lot of private ownership that's possible. But in a lot of other countries, you deal with other kinds of legislation where you have a landowner, but if the creek runs through, you may not have the water rights or you may not have the mineral rights for what's below. So wild mining becomes a little funkier in some of these other countries um we haven't done a wild site outside the u.s yet i hope i can crack that nut sometime soon because i would i would mm -hmm. really like to increase our geographic diversity i'd like to be you know not just in the u.s but i'd love to be in central america south america africa i'd like to get maybe southeast asia if i could if i could get that that would really um appeal to me and I kind of lost my train of thought, John. I'm not sure what question I was well, even bring answering. You, I'll bring you back. But there's one, I mean, are you public with how many megawatts you have under management right now? No. 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 Sorry, I don't know. Uh, nor the number of sites, I'm guessing, right? Um, I, I can share that. A, a little bit depends on how you count it because I've got a couple that are, I would, I would say right now we're at five and we're bringing up another site uh, in mid-July. Right. So we've got one that's very, very close. 
you you talked a little bit about how the difficult you know what aspect is most difficult kind of shifts um once all those are in place identified the energy source put the financing in yep. place have the machines what is the process to you know building it out and managing it like, so for <clears throat> two, two questions attached to that is how long does it take and you know what are the difficulties there but what does the management process look like if it's remote does somebody have to live in a bunker close by okay. what's you know what does all, all that look like okay all right um Once we identify, once we get that parameter, once we lock in the energy, um, I usually can lock in the, the remaining, the, the capital cost, right? The machines, the containers, which we're at that point too, where we're, we're 100% container-based now. So we're not, we're not doing any fixed structure stuff. Um, Ball, ballpark, sorry to interrupt, but ballpark, what are we talking about in terms of investment for something like this? Like... Five oh. to ten million oh. bucks, something like that. Um, well, I'll, I'll I'll put it I'll put it this way. So the there's a project. The next I'll share this with you. Okay, the next project I have coming up is a small project. Okay, it's a um, one point one megawatt container. So it's one point one megawatts. We raised um, one point seven five million dollars of capital to fund that project okay so and we'll generate um about 17 and a half petahashes out of that container okay um we we raise that money uh, in that particular case the opportunity arose right at the end of last year um i think it was december 20th so I was able to raise the money in that case, um, a little of our money, some external money. We had it done before the end of the year. What we do, we do is typically on a site like that, we'll create a unique LLC. So there's multiple reasons for that, but we'll do a unique LLC for each site. So we, um, we, rate, we, we created the company, got the bank accounts, threw the money in. We have a lot of the boilerplate for this already because we've done it several times, but you know, we were able to do it very quickly. Place the orders. Um, uh, in in that case, the long lead time was actually the container. Th those lead times are coming way down now, but we the long lead time was the container. That container is going to be delivered on July fifth. So it's about a six. In that case, it's about six months from the idea to um, operation. Yeah. Um, I think we can do it in four now. Like if I started today, if I had the same opportunity today, I think I could do it in four. So um, now once the site's up, something like that happens to be within a handful of miles of one of our existing sites. So for us, it's really no incremental labor. Um, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of effort for about two weeks bringing this thing up. But once that's done, it requires very minimal um, oversight. So somebody will go there every day. We've got remote tools that will tell us if something's um, off on one of the units and we can go out kind of um, off schedule, but it, it really somebody probably going out there for 30, 40 minutes a day. That's in our regular rotation. Now, if it's mm -hmm. a completely remote thing, um, like what I'll say is like in our South Carolina site, what we were able to do was train 
the guy who's really the hydroelectric engineer who's got to oversee um, that's the energy production side, right? So that one we're doing a wild site and that we're able to train that guy to do about 80% of what needs to be done in terms of machine maintenance, um, cleaning filters. He can swap out a power supply. He can do like those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, we would do the same thing in a natural gas facility too, where, you know, if uh, a guy that can, um, work on, on, uh, uh, natural gas generators and things like that, he's going to have enough technical aptitude that we can teach him what needs to be done. Um, so it's really not a huge burden. It's probably not quite as efficient. That's where the elephant guys might say, well, you're not as efficient, but it's really labor is such a small piece of what we do in terms of our economics. It almost doesn't matter. Right. Would that, I mean, that would obviously differ the more remote the site is. Sure. And so is that, is that partially a constraint? Like, you know, and you can make the case that there's probably not that many uh, operating energy sites too remote because there should be something nearby for the, the, the initial investment in the energy site. But is that, is that part of the constraint? Is that like the further remote you get, the, you know, the harder it is to service, the more you need to maybe even put someone close by full time. That's one of the major constraints there. Probably, but I'll, you know, I'll share with you, um, I'm pretty open about most of our stuff and, and, um, like what I'm trying to do in El Salvador is we have some, I think, fairly unique ideas about how to do hydroelectric in very remote areas. And, um, if I'm able to get the deal together, whether it's there or, you know, some other, some other country where we're going into a very rural area and we just have water flow. Uh, you know, our confidence that we'd be able to take somebody who even just has some mechanical aptitude and teach them what needs to be done. Like I said, like it's things like swapping filters out, swapping power supplies out, maybe a hash board. It's not highly, highly technical stuff after the initial setup. So I, it, it's really not that hard. And, and I would also say that the more remote that we go, the cheaper the labor tends to get too. that, mm. that, um, you know, if we're in a, a fairly remote village in El Salvador, um, you know, we can place somebody there for, uh, you know, probably a third or less of what it would cost to place somebody in a similar capacity in the U S so it's, it's really not material. Yeah. It's fun to imagine, you know, cause so many possibilities come to mind when you think about this kind of stuff, it's fun to imagine a future where, you know, you find a remote energy source, be it stranded gas, hydro, what have you really far away from anything. And you drop down two containers, right? One's got the Bitcoin miners. One's got a little living pod in it. You know, the power feeds yep. the pod and like a hardcore Bitcoiner who just wants to manage machines, establish some sats flow and, you know, read, learn, write, whatever their thing is, yeah. just lives like that remote lifestyle while they're servicing and managing this operation. And how many, how much stranded energy comes online around the world with that capacity, you know, the, the kind of right. package deal where you plop it down and you live and you mine and that's it. Yep. Yeah. It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And, and by the way, that's where most of the energy is. So, I mean, you know, if you, if you accumulate that, if you take a, you know, some, some river, a remote river in El Salvador, 
Um, and let's say we, we, th there are some interesting things with kind of, uh, what are called, um, um, flow of the river sort of technologies, meaning, um, we're not damming or anything like that. We're just, you know, basically dropping all the way back to, if you, if you go Google it, you'll see like in Mesopotamia, 5,000 years ago, it's almost how we started generating as man was harnessing energy was dropping water wheels into rivers to crush grain and saw wood and things like that. And almost full circle, like is, is really what I'm trying to do is say, Hey, I can, I can go into these remote areas and, and we've got some pretty efficient technology that we can drop basically into a river. It doesn't, it doesn't change one molecule of, uh, uh, water going down the river. It's super environmentally friendly. Um, I, it, it's hard to find any objection to it. And basically anywhere water flows, you can do this, right? So, um, and, and to your point, you know, in fact, maybe what even happens that I'm not the first guy to think about this, but if, if you take your example and say, well, we drop a container there and maybe it's a one megawatt operation, a small operation. There's a guy there, he's managing it. Um, at, once it's working, we go, well, why don't we put one a hundred meters downstream? <laughs> like we'll put a second one, hundred meters downstream. Now we need two people and mm -hmm. let's put another 100 meters downstream. Well, all of a sudden maybe a community develops and we put another water wheel there just to generate energy for the people living there. And suddenly a small village sprouts up. So, um, I, again, I'm not the first guy to say this, but Bitcoin is the first time in history where the need for energy can be brought to the source of the energy as opposed to the opposite. And, mm -hmm. and where that all leads us, I, I don't know, but I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool too. Uh, how do you manage in this sort of environment where it's such a unique thing to be pursuing a good or, or an operation where the, the income can fluctuate so wildly based on the price, the market price of Bitcoin and to perhaps a lesser degree in terms of volatility, the difficulty adjustment of how the Bitcoin network operates. So how is economic calculation done uh, for projects in the Bitcoin mining space, given the fluctuations that are inherent in how, you know, it all operates? Yeah, it, it, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I've had to develop um, tools, uh, proprietary tools of our own, for three, for really three things. How do, how do we predict global hash rate? How do we predict price and where are fees going? Because those are the, those are the three mm. main factors, right? Yep. Um, I mean, my price prediction tool is probably the weakest of those, frankly. Um, I'm not a trader. That's not my forte. Um, and so I have to kind of brute force that one by running multiple models. So, you know, what, what does it look like if price is flat? What does it look like if, you know, this happens or that happens? Um, I've gotten pretty good at the global hash predictor. Um, in fact, I did a, I did a study. It's in one of my, um, I have a, a, a blog on, on medium for anybody that, that's ever interested. And I published some of my stuff there, but I, I'm pretty proud. I was nuts on like, I'm, I'm only off by like, I think 1% of my prediction in June for where we would be today. So, um, 
I'm pretty good there. Fees are a bit of a wild card. So anyway, though, the, the, the thing is, so I have a pro forma. So I'll take, you know, the, the known is I know how much hash rate I'm going to have. I know what my energy cost is. And all the other costs are really fixed. So that's one of the beauties is that um, we don't have a variable cost structure. We have a really a fixed cost structure. Um, it, the revenue really is all that changes, right? And so, plus, we're measuring revenue on two vectors. We're measuring it in fiat and we're measuring it in Bitcoin. So the first thing we try to do is, as best we can, um, everybody that we work with, the, the investors that we work with, we want Bitcoin-oriented investors, anybody, any partner that we bring in, so that we're measuring primarily in the output in Bitcoin, that output in Bitcoin, not in fiat. Um, we pay our investors, by the way, I'll sidelight, like we pay our investors in Bitcoin and we pay daily. So um, that's awesome. And I can come if you remind me, I'll come back to that. There's an important reason why, especially for anybody sure. looking at investing in money. Um, what we do is we we model a four and a half year cycle. So um, we'll take for a given generation of mining equipment we we generally model four and a half years so right now it would be let's say a a 100 terahash per second unit running from let's say like i just shared with you the one that comes online in july it'll run from july of 2022 to the end of 2026 and then um you know then we then we when I present to an investor, that's what I show them. Say like, hey, if we get another six months or a year out of that, that's all gravy. But I'm presenting an ROI that I think looks really good in those terms. But I always present it in multiple ways. I present them in fiat. So I'll say at the point that the, the Bitcoin is mined, here's the price of the fiat. And so here's our revenue and our our resulting um, operating profit in fiat. And then I'll do the same thing in Bitcoin. And then I'll do it a third time saying that what's the value of all of the Bitcoin if it was hodled? Now, like I said, what we do is let's just say on a given day, one Bitcoin gets mined. And let's just keep it real simple. Let's say... Um, Let's say there's three partners, John, me, you, and uh, person X. Mm -hmm. So we mine one Bitcoin and the price is 30000 So we would recognize $30,000 in revenue. That's also the cost basis of that Bitcoin. So this, this part's really important. I'm not giving tax advice, but I guess I kind of am. But um, <laughs> so, so that's the revenue recognition point. Okay. Now... What we would do is, let's say our operating costs were forecast at 30%. So we would take um, 0.3 of the one Bitcoin and sell it off to fiat. And we're going to pay labor and electricity and insurance and all that stuff with that money. That leaves 0.7. Now we're going to take that 0.7 and you're going to get a third of it. I'm going to get a third of it. And the other partner is going to get a third of it. That's all going to happen on the same day it was mined. And the reason is that, you use an example, 
you want to get your 0.21 Bitcoin, whatever that number is, okay, with the same cost basis that it came into the company at $30,000. Because if, if I do what a lot of companies do, which is I distribute the Bitcoin, let's say at the end of the month or the end of a quarter, and if Bitcoin's back at 60, when I pass you the point, if I, if I passed you your Bitcoin at that time, I pass it to you at the higher cost basis and you instantly have to recognize capital gains. So if I give it to you right away, um, now, now you can hodl it forever and if you want and you never pay capital gains on it. But if I, but if I wait, I have all this risk. Now you could say if it went down, I pass capital loss. That's true. But um, in the long run, I think it's, um, it's a very dangerous thing. So, so that, that time, that time period is what dictates my, my having to claim a capital gain. But if, if I receive the asset same day that I can just hodl and don't have to claim anything. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Um, what generally, and again, I know this might be sensitive, so you dictate what you, I'm sure you'll, you'll determine what you can tell me and not, but what is like a ballpark ROI time to payback for these uh, projects? And I know there's a ton of variability, not least of which because the price of Bitcoin is variable. Um, if it's a, if it's a um, like on-grid project, this is the difference between on-grid and wild. Okay. So in an on-grid project, on-grid project or captive project, you generally can see your ROI mm, 11 to 13 months, somewhere right in that range. If, um, if we're developing a, 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 a wild energy source, there's a much bigger capital investment. Um, and so it probably about doubles. But... You also remember, like if it's in the case of a hydro site where, you know, okay, we're going to get essentially free energy for 20 years or something like that. Now that's, um, that's an asset in and of itself. Right. Mm. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're mining on grid and you go through a four and a half year cycle at the end of the four and a half year cycle, you're done. Right. You don't, you don't have anything else. So if you're, why, why is that? Because the machines are spent um, and, you know, the, the, I guess it depends on if you've, if you've got a long-term PPA, maybe, right. <laughs> maybe, but, um, you know, as a smaller, this is one, one advantage of the bigger guys is they may be able to go in and get a 10-year PPA or something like that, right? They may, they maybe can do that. Um, smaller guys, that's pretty hard. If you're going in a, a megawatt or three megawatts, you may not even be able to get a PPA. So, um, so, you know, but, but again, on the wild site, you have these other assets, you know, you have this power generation that's not even Bitcoin dependent, right? You, you have this thing where you could, you could do that. Um, the generators themselves generally retain value very well. Um, so, so anyway, ROI is, is a little longer, but, um, 
when you look out at a, let's say a four and a half year window or a five year window or, or maybe a double it, um, if, if you do a capital call, then you can kind of refresh them anyway. Um, the wild sites in the long run tend to do a little bit better than mm. the on-grid sites. Um, but the ROI, the front end, you know, recapture and invested capital takes, takes longer because there's just, there's just more. Right? right. And if I'm hearing you correctly, as part of that reason, because let's say the economic depreciation of the machines is slower on the wild sites because of the lower cost of energy. You can run just for example, sake an S nine longer than you could at the, the on-grid sites. Right. You're right. Now you, you, at, at some point you have to make that decision where even if the S nine is still sure. running there profitably, let's say, would you be better off, you know, reinvesting in right. something new? Um, but uh, but yeah, you, you, you have that choice. Um, and I think that's the big thing is, is, is having that flexibility to make that choice. Because if you're, if you're on grid, you're running those and something changes in the power structure, you know, you're, you're just gone. And as I said, I think that even in the case of the PPAs, most of them still have some risk of, of of some sort of tax structure being imposed in the future. And right. so that's why I get a little nervous about, um, about on-grid stuff long-term. Yeah. You know, I, I think we're on the same page and a lot of Bitcoiners, at least, you know, a plebs, let's say, are fairly amenable to the wild mining concept. I mean, and, and again, just from sort of a philosophical, mind-blowing sort of view, as, as you just said, you're not just buying the machines, but you have an energy producing asset, you have generators, you have all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it seems likely to be the case that you will always be, it's always going to be an asset to be able to turn energy into a market good. And that's what an energy source and Bitcoin miners allows you to do. Maybe not as efficiently, maybe not as, you know, robustly as some of the bigger miners, but it's kind of a, you know, I like the thought of having an asset that I'll always be able to convert energy into a market good. But of course, the, the question that comes to mind, and this, I think, applies to plebs that are looking at buying a ASIC and plugging it in somewhere or financing a project like this or, or, or even bigger, what are the trade-offs and what is the economic considerations between devoting capital to a miner or a project and having the payout occur over a longer period or buying, buy, just buying Bitcoin itself? That's always the tension yeah. it seems. So how do you resolve that? Or what is your take on that? Yeah. <clears throat> it's the most common question I get from investors. You know, why would I invest in one of your ventures? And I'd say this, okay. The, the first one is that, um, <sighs> Bitcoin is, as we all know, volatile as measured in fiat. And, if, if, if let's say you're sitting here today, we're at 30, right? And, and you say, well, I'm, I'm looking at a four and a half year cycle. And I, be, and, and I believe that in that four and a half year cycle, we're going to end at 200. That is an example. Now, if you, and you're looking to deploy $100,000, something we can keep the math simple. 
can deploy $100,000. So I can go buy $100,000 worth of Bitcoin at 30. Uh, and if, so that would get me, what would that get me? Let's say three and a third Bitcoin, right? So if Bitcoin just goes up and to the right with little bounce, like it's just kind of this nice smooth curve. The way my models come out is that if, if that were to happen, you probably make the maximum amount by buying Bitcoin right now. Um, and, and Bitcoin mining would probably underperform that by maybe 10 or 15%, something on that order. If the path between 30 and 200 is the way it normally is, which is filled with ups and downs and, and you know, long troughs, then you'll probably slightly outperform it mining. Because when those troughs hit, especially if they're extended, so if we get, if we get a six or eight month bear, just like we've seen some reversal in hash rate, if you follow, closely follow that, John, but we've seen some reversal in hash right now, right? We, we, we peaked at like, depends on which chart you use at like 225, 228 exahashes and and now we've been down at like 204 if we have these extended periods and you keep going you don't turn off others are turning off again you'll slightly outperform it now so those are those two scenarios now let's look at another scenario another scenario is we're at 30 today and four and a half years from now we're still at 30 um if that were the case then my models show you'll dramatically outperform with mining. Um, that, that if we have this like extended long-term bear, you're going to have a much more Bitcoin at the end of that four and a half years. And we'll see quite a bit of hash fall off. We'll see capital not deployed in the same way that it's been deployed. We'll stay down. And of course, if it goes negative, you'll still have even more Bitcoin. So, so what I would say is when you're comparing buying Bitcoin to, to um, mining, it all depends on the path that we get there. What I think Bitcoin mining does is it provides kind of a downside insulation to people. So when I'm talking to people, what I'll often say is like, hey, if you're, if you're kind of new and you're just getting involved, um, just go buy Bitcoin. Like, I mean, it's a terrible sales pitch for me, but you know, I think it's the right thing to advise people is it just go buy Bitcoin. Now, as, as Bitcoin becomes a larger percentage of what you're doing, of your net worth, um, now maybe start diversifying within that Bitcoin piece and get some money um, into mining as a diversification point. Um, by the way, not to be confused with buying stocks in companies, publicly traded companies, because those don't get you any Bitcoin, right? They're, 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 they're kind of proxies for Bitcoin, but you don't get Bitcoin at the end. You get yeah. fiat at the end. So, so my advice is um, from a financial perspective, I think um, once you hit a certain threshold, you know, maybe it's 3%, 5% of your net worth um, in Bitcoin. 
maybe 10%, something like that. Then start kind of layering in some, um, some, some investments in mining. And if that means you're running uh, an S19 in your garage, great. If it's investing in a company like mine, great. Um, it's doing a, uh, you know, one of these uh, compasses or, you know, whatever, you know, I guess fine. I mean, I, I, I do like the self-sovereign aspect of things where, where, you know, you have a little more control. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And your point being that, you know, these, these hosted mining services are somewhat of an in-between, right? You, yeah. you legally own the miner, but they're at the disposal of somebody else's rack space. And that's a vulnerability, especially if you're looking through the lens of complete yeah. self-sovereignty. Yeah. Um, but I guess to and, be fair, to be fair, investing in my company has got some similarity to that. So. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, in these calculations, is the asset value of the miner included, or is that just presumed to depreciate to zero, basically? In my model, that depreciates to zero, but the um, <clears throat> the power generation stuff does not depreciate to zero. Right. Yeah. I, I only ask because, you know, again, many of us, uh, many Bitcoiners I know kind of grapple with this question. And, you know, if you want to mine for two years on a new gen miner and then for whatever reason, decide, you know, it's, it's not for you anymore. Well, then the resale value of that miner is a part of the calculation for its economic viability, I suppose. Yeah. I think in, in a two year window, you know, you, you probably have 50% of the value still retained. Um, mm -hmm. although there is some, uh, some gray in that, cause we don't know, you know, as, as, especially with the Intel stuff coming later this year, I mean, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, that this mining equipment thing will go away as an issue. And that, you know, I talked to you about kind of the three things, mm. um, you know, we might be sitting here a year from today, 18 months from today saying, well, that's not even an issue anymore that it's always there. Like if you, if you and I just start, decide to start a new company, we don't, we don't consider the acquisition of new personal computers and servers as a key element of what we're trying to do. I think ultimately it will come down to energy and capital, I guess is what I'm saying. That right. We're just and in, you, you bring that up because that means the price of ASICs would come down and therefore you can't really rely on a resale value in any, in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, I think there would still be some resale value. I don't know if they will retain right. at the same rate. I mean, we've seen almost a 50% fall from like November-ish prices yeah. to today yeah. in, you know, cost per terahash. <clears throat> so, and that's just because, you know, of, of market saturation. I think a lot of it has been some of these public guys who couldn't get everything deployed and they're trying to, uh, you know, they're bleeding into the gray market through... Um, the back doors of some of the bigger guys, right? Can't deploy. What you know so on that point? The last couple of weeks, aside, hash rate has been going up, fees have been going down, price has been going down. So this would, you know, presumably put a squeeze on people that are in the mining business. What's it been like in this environment, broadly speaking, over the last six months? Well. <clears throat> I mean, we've seen, um, you know, revenue per, uh, kilowatt, 
our um, reduced, clearly. Um, now we have made some upgrades in our equipment. We're, we're probably, we're not probably not quite keeping pace. We're pretty close. Um, just as we bring out newer generation stuff, right? It, it, we get some efficiency from that um, relative to the stuff that was already there. But it's been tough. Um, uh, we're still very profitable, though. And we're, we're still cash flow positive. We're still profitable. Um, as I said, we're still able to get capital if, if we need it. Um, interesting thing, this isn't the question you asked, but for the first time, I've been doing this for five years. Our, our company has solid financials. We haven't been able to get a bank, like traditional commercial lending to even like, I mean, they wouldn't give us money for a cup of coffee. I, I feel like when I walk into those places, I'm considered somewhere between a, you know, a heroin dealer and a money launderer. Um, and that's know. only because Bitcoin is associated with your business? Yeah. If um, I walked in with the same P&L statement and balance sheet and, and it was, you know, Bob's Flower Company, I, I think they'd give me, you know, money without any questions. Um, but they, they won't, um, I, they, <sighs> some of them are more specific about it and some of them are just more, um, you know, what would they say? It's kind of like they'll, they'll pay lip service to me and then they just kind of go away and they won't return my calls. Mm. But but the ones that were direct say, yeah, we just, we, we, we don't have faith in Bitcoin companies. Um, if you have, let's say you have X million dollars of, um, mining equipment sitting on your, an asset list on your balance sheet, they don't care. Like they might as well be zero. Um, if, if those were Dell servers, they would be worth face value and I could get a loan to value ratio of, I don't know, 50 or 60% on them, but because they're bit furies or bit mains, they, they won't, they won't do it. So but anyway, I'm seeing a little change. In that. I'm seeing a little bit of change. I'm seeing a couple, a couple banks are starting to see there's an opportunity and I'm having, I'm in the middle of a legitimate discussion, I think with one of them and I'm hopeful that I'll be able to, finance a little bit of one of my next expansions with a bank loan. Right. Which I'm sure would make your life easier, but I, uh, I'm not disappointed to hear that the capital has to come from, you know, the smart money, people who get it, you know, because then the rewards also wind up in, you know, Bitcoiners <clears throat> hands, people who see this and less in the hands of the legacy yep. system, which, you know, I won't shed a tear for that. Let's say. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely okay. I mean, I would only say is if, if I loan, if I borrow the money, it's, you know, it's me borrowing the money and, um, you know, I, which I view as a little different than let's say a public company going into these markets, because to me, the Bitcoin I distribute every day. That's true for me as an owner in the venture too. So, you know, there's Bob, the, owner of the company and then there's Bob mm. the pleb and you know, the money ends up very quickly in Bob the pleb. So, um, <laughs> you know, you know, one yeah, interesting, you know, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, you go, you go. Well, you, you had asked about fees 
you know, fees are, um, fees are a huge wild card. And, um, I mean, we basically don't count on them for anything right now, but <clears throat> when we work, <coughs> excuse me, when we're working on a pro forma, you know, there's a, we're, we're just under two years from a having. So as we're deploying new projects right now, that's really the wild card. You know, that's, that's where I spend a lot of time in my own model. You know, what will happen to hash around that time period? Um, you know, what will happen to um, the fee structure around that time period? And there's so many wild cards and it's hard to forecast too much into fees. But I am hopeful that, you know, for instance, um, Lightning, if we can see Lightning adoption continue to increase and more channels get open, um, even, I don't know if you're familiar with splicing, but it's, you know, something kind of new coming. If, if people start splicing channels, you know, all those things result in an unchained transaction. And so I don't want lightning fees to go real high, but I also want more revenue coming into the mining community too. <laughs> so um, I'm hoping that we can strike some sort of balance and that as we, like right now on a normal block, we're seeing like say point, point 0.1 Bitcoin or something on that or point 0.15 something. Those would be very typical, you know, fee structures. So we're sitting at, what would that be? Um, let's round up. 4,500 like, bucks? Uh, yeah. 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 You know, if we could see, as we drop from six and a quarter to 3.125 on the, um, the subsidy, you know, if we could see the fee pop up into the, half a Bitcoin range or something like that, that would be wonderful. It would get us into about um, 12, 15% of the total reward. I think that would be very healthy. So um, hopefully that will happen. Because one way to look at it is the today, if we have, if we have six and a quarter Bitcoin per reward, and if we're on 10 minute blocks times, we always tend to run a little faster. We typically do, but, but 144 blocks a day, uh, six and a quarter, that's 900 Bitcoin a day at $30,000. That means there's $27,000 of mining revenue being shared around the world. And that number daily, and that number has vacillated between there and about 50 million a day, um, for, you know, the, which is a pretty big range, but, but that's about where it's vacillated. Um, we, we need it to sustain there. Now, now hopefully, um, if, hopefully by the time the halving comes, we've at least rebounded to the $60,000 range. So that would, that would keep us at the lower end of that threshold. But I think the mining community will stay vibrant and active a lot more if we're in like the 40 to 50,000, 50 million dollar a day, um, day range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens with fees. You know, there's a lot of, uh, FUD and there's some concern, but, um, my general faith is that it's going to work out, but probably not on the timeline that we want it to. So it'll probably 
scare us for a while and there will be attempts to uh, preemptively resolve what is perceived to be a fee problem in the future. And I think my opinion is that would be the worst thing that we could do. I think we have to let the market figure out, you know, let the water yeah. find its level with this thing and recognize the importance of not trying to intervene to yeah. conjure up or to create some presumed solution to a presumed problem. Yeah, that, you have my full support on that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I have I have my hopes, but I, I do not believe in our, any sort of artificial intervention. I mean, that is that is completely contrary to our ethos, right? That, yeah. Amen. Be- Amen. Um, in one, in, I think your most recent article, just to go way back to what we were discussing at the beginning, you discuss what the nature of an attack could look like, um, based on this elephant, elephant centralization. And it was interesting and I hadn't really, uh, seen it articulated that way before. And, you know, I know it's kind of a lengthy article, but can you share a little bit about your thought process and, and some of your concerns surrounding that? Sure. This was a mental exercise that started um, when the China ban happened. Okay. And we saw what we saw. And I think as a community and ecosystem, we saw the Bitcoin network respond in a very, um, uh, a very exciting way. Right. I mean, we, we saw this happen. We saw a little bit of block time um, lengthening, but on the whole, we just showed a, a massive amount of resilience. But it got me thinking like, well, what, how big would it have had to be for there to really be a problem? And, and by problem, I'm not talking about 51% attack. I'm not talking about um, some sort of disruption of the ledger itself. But, you know, if, <clears throat> if block times got long enough that it ground everything to a halt, you know, to me, that seemed like the logical way like if I was trying to attack. And again, I want to point out, I, I'm talking about something I view as largely improbable, but not impossible. That's, that's just what I say. And, and I believe also completely preventable. So, but what I did is I said, okay, let's take it to the extreme. So I said, okay, what if we had lost 99%? But what would what would have happened? I mean, just for clarity, meaning ninety nine percent of let's say these massive centralized miners were co opted in some way, yep. and whether maliciously or just via some stupid regulation, went offline. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. What does that look like? So, um, what I found was that, <clears throat> and and if that attack uh, or disruption occurred at just the right moment, which would be, let's say, right at the point of a difficulty adjustment, then what would happen? So for those who aren't familiar, every or right 2000, after, right? Excuse me? Right after, it, would it be right yeah. after a difficulty adjustment? Yeah, I mean, even a couple blocks before or a couple blocks after would have basically the same effect. But you're, okay. you're 2016 blocks or so away from a difficulty adjustment, right? Mm-hmm. So you could actually do it even, let's say, 10 blocks before the end. Well, the, the difficulty adjustment wouldn't see that all that hash had come offline recently. It would just see the average of the previous 2016. So it would look right. like things were normal. Right, right, right. And then mm-hmm. it, would, it would make this a, 
you know, it would make its normal adjustment thinking it was adjusting to 10 minute block times. But with 99% of the hash gone, what would happen? I'm going off the top of my head and it's been a little off the article. I think it's about 16 and a half hours per block, meaning the um, difficulty adjustment instead of taking two weeks would take over nine months. And said, well, that's, that's not very good. Again, it's highly improbable. You know, it, it would probably only be possible in a situation where maybe all of the hash were concentrated in, let's say, a, a few dozen sites with just the plebs having a few miners running in garages, right? Representing the 1%. So this attack happens or disruption happens. It's my opinion that if that were to happen, <clears throat> that the integrity of Bitcoin itself would be put into question and its ability to be a global reserve asset and do all those sort of things would grind a halt. You'd also find that things like lightning would start grinding to a halt because you can't, you couldn't open new channels. You couldn't close channels. Um, you couldn't do unchained transactions. They would, you know, just take forever. Um, exchanges couldn't, couldn't resolve. You couldn't get money off of it. There'd be all kinds of things that, that would, that would grind to a halt. So I said, well, you know, that's, that's extremely unlikely, you know, probably in the, in the realm of, of, um, I don't know, some meteor hitting the earth, but it's, it's possible. But, you know, is there something a little more probable that would also be disruptive? So I started saying, okay, I know 99% is really bad. And I know from the China situation that 60% we were resilient on. Where is really the problem a lie? And, and, and for those interested in the gory details, what I essentially ascertained was that at about 30% um, of, if we only had 30% of the hash, it would be disruptive, I would say, on the edge of a danger zone but probably survivable. <clears throat> when you get down to about 85% of the hash being lost, that's really where, in my mind, it gets ugly. And so the, the, the conclusion I reached is that, you know, as an industry, as long as we can keep at least 30% of the hash in the hands of horses and rabbits, and we also can keep at least 30% of the hash on wild energy sources, then we essentially create immunity. And, and um, if, if you get down to where it's 15% it's, uh, horses and rabbits and 15% wild, that's, that's, I would say, you know, like red alert danger area. I don't think we're that close to, to at least the, the, we're probably already there in terms of, um, on grid, we definitely are. So I think as an industry, we need to develop more wild energy, off-grid energy um, to create that insulation. Um, it's a little difficult to ascertain how much is in the elephants. But if you look at like the Bitcoin Mining Council, the Bitcoin Mining Council itself will say they represent something on the order of, you know, 50 to 55% of the global hash. So... We're not there yet, but that's kind of a danger vector to me. Like, hey, if, if you know, almost by definition, those are the bigger, the bigger players. 
on the mm-hmm. council. So, what was the? Because I didn't follow this too closely. What happened to block times during the China ban shutdown? Um, I think we we hit like fifteen, sixteen minutes, something on that order. So wasn't that bad? Given the way you were thinking, like, w- did you expect longer ones, or is this kind of consistent with your expectations of what would happen? I would have expected a little bit longer. Um, that said, I think we're seeing some evidence. I had actually um, said a few things about this at the time. Um, I'm not sure it all ever turned off. So, I mean, I think there's some right. evidence now we're seeing that, hey, maybe still about 20% of the global hash still sits in China. So maybe they lost <coughs> two thirds of what they had, but left kind of about a third scattered around. Let me ask you this then, and we, and we, we touched on this earlier, because it seems to be what I'm hearing is that if the industry doesn't move towards more resilient approach to mining, you know, to balance the, uh, the effect of the, the elephants or the dependent or on grid or whatever we want to call them, um, then we, we may have a problem, or at least we increase the probability that potential problem exists. Um, but again, we're back to that scenario where are we not asking people to make economic decisions along ideological lines rather than the economic incentives that they're confronted with. So how do you reconcile that? Well, I just, I hope that, that, as we said before, I believe the economic incentives can be there if people are willing to put the effort in that I think there's, there's a massive amount of stranded energy out there. I think that a lot of that energy can be harvested at economical levels. Um, people have to be willing to do a 300 kilowatt site, a two megawatt site, a one megawatt site. Um, my company is, I think there are others um, also willing to do that. I think the plebs, um, maybe not purely for economic incentives. Some of them may want some non-KYC Bitcoin. Um, you know, um, some of them may just want to be uh, a part of the network. I think that's important. I also say this, I think that we're going to see as, I can't say if it's next year or three years from now, but you're going to see mining equipment get very accessible. Um, where for 1200 bucks or something like that, you can get something that you can plug in. Um, I think we'll see a lot of products that get back to kind of, you know, when, if you read like the early writings of Satoshi, he didn't really separate mining from node. And, you know, he, mm. he primarily called them proof of workers, you know, the, 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 the device or the people. And, you know, his vision was, was people running them in their houses. And um, I, well, I, I can't make an announcement here today. You know, my, my background's in computer design. I'll say this, if I get access to the silicon, I will, I will get back into the business and I will develop mining equipment of my own. And I'll, I'll also say that one of my objectives would be to get machines that were affordable for the plebs that they can plug in, that they can be probably marginally profitable on at residential rates, um, but also perform kind of back to that original vision of proof of worker, meaning node and miner kind of combined into one. 
Um, mm. So I think that'll change the landscape in and of itself. And there are, I guess, you know, we, we don't really know how many of us there are. I, you know, there's two here today, I think, guys, that, that, I mean, I would do it for break even or less as an individual. Um, at, not, not at a huge loss, but at a, but at a, I think a slight loss, I would still probably mm. do it. Um, you know, are there, are there 10,000 of us? Are there a million of us? Are there 10 million of us? I don't really know. Mm. Maybe you might have, you, you talk to a lot more people than I do. You might even have a guess at that. You know, how many clubs are of, like how many people really are in the ethos and like, get what we're after and doing this for that reason. I don't know. It, it's a great question. I wonder that a lot myself because you know bitcoin twitter can i don't know what kind of impression that instills on you on how large all this is but i less than ten thousand is kind of my immediate like you know what i want to say immediately now you know hopefully i'd be surprised and it'd be more than that but um it's still so early you know it's still so early in people seeing this and a lot of people they understand you know this has a, you know, it's a call option on the future monetary system, as, as people say. And I know that the approach is to buy and hodl or accumulate regularly and hodl. But all the different elements of the ideology and the ethos and the, the kind of ride or die nature when you truly get it. I don't know how many people globally see that, like more all the time. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's yeah. people come out of the woodworks all the time and they, they, they see that bright orange light and they're kind of changed forever. And those people, to your point. I think they would be willing to tithe the network, if you will, you know, mine at a loss to a certain degree, you know, almost as yeah. a, some sort of duty, you know, but yeah. again, there's, there's limits to how, you know, to how many sats yeah. people are willing to give away, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, you know, the, yeah, the, the, the adoption, you know, being an older guy, I mentioned, you know, early in our talk, um, I was on a design team for what I would argue was the first laptop computer. And I was very blessed that I was on that team. Um, you know, and, and at the time a laptop computer, I think they were about $3,500 in 1986. And this would have been for, you know, a product running MS DOS with a 10 megabyte hard drive and you know, a, a monochrome <laughs> backlit screen. And at the time, <clears throat> you know, the adoption was tiny. It was, it was only very high net worth people and corporations. And, you know, it was difficult for people to, you know, I was in it at that time. I believed in it. I believe it would help change the world. Um, it was exciting for me to be part of that, but it took about 10 years, I would say till the mid nineties till I think laptops became you know, mainstream, you know, that, that it went from being kind of a niche business tool to that. And, and then that, that kind of overlapped with the adoption of the internet. I think a lot of people track the adoption of the internet and, and try to place that curve along with the adoption of Bitcoin as, you know, mm -hmm. some sort of proxy you know, for where we are. But I think there's some truth to that. Um, I think both the personal computer and, and the internet had that same thing. Um, the, I guess the, the, 
the the reason that I'm bringing that up though is that I don't think that the average person in 1986 when I would show them a laptop computer would just be completely they would be intrigued by it but they had no vision they would ever own one like they could not imagine a world in which they would own one or or view it as a necessity but 10 to 15 years later certainly by the end of the 90s most people viewed a personal computer as an absolute necessity and even then the laptop computer had had largely taken over from the desktop computer and you know in in colleges by um uh by that time period almost every student had one for instance um mm-hmm. were you were you by chance in college in that era john when were early you 2000s early 2000s and yeah. did you have a laptop yeah yep, yep. so mm-hmm. you know that was that that same sort of thing so um kind of my long-winded way of saying yeah it's it's really difficult to project technology adoption and and the way that people perceive it and they're not capable of doing it themselves it's one of the things you know i learned in my role you've if, if you've read books about jobs and some of that he he certainly had the same conclusion like we you can't you couldn't do like a focus group study if we did a focus we, we did them but but they never were right like mm. you'd go in and you'd you'd say hey i can build i can build a product that can do this a laptop, you know, laptop computer that can do X, Y, and Z. And it would be absolute crickets. Like nobody would say they would want it. Um, but, but after building it, um, and seeing what it did, then people would want it. So, you know, we went through that same thing with, you know, I was part on design teams for things like digital cameras and early MP3 players and all that. And every focus group, puke gun, all of these products, people, people just can't imagine the future well. And that's why, you know, jobs at Apple, I would say, you know, his, his courage as a technologist to just say, no, I'm, I'm going forward because I believe it. I have the vision. They don't, they'll, they'll get it when they get it. Like, yeah. um, and I guess that's, Bitcoin is. I, I think the, the, the term uh, gradually then suddenly applies to a lot of technological adoption, you know, whether it's yeah. laptops, the internet, cell phones, you know, smartphones, telephones, you know, because there's a cost to being a laggard, right? And yeah. for, for example, like if you didn't adopt LinkedIn, and this is a horrible example because I hate LinkedIn and I recently deleted my profile, but just yeah. an example, if like in the 2010s, you didn't have a LinkedIn profile, what to what degree did that inhibit your ability to find a better job? There's, right. there's an answer to that, and it's probably to some degree, whatever it is, depending on your industry and all that kind of stuff. So there's a cost to not adopting these new technologies. Same with smartphones, same with the internet, same with laptops. The thing that I, it, I, I'm, it, I'm excited to see how this plays out for many reasons, but one is that what is the cost of being outside of money, base layer yeah. money? Because presumably the costs are far greater than maybe any other technology. If you're on the, the wrong side, or if you're a laggard on something as consequential as what's becoming global base layer money. And so when that penny drops or, you know, the acceleration of the adoption for that, like, um, it seems like it would be more aggressive than almost any other technology. 
And, you know, maybe we're in the middle of it and we just can't see it, or maybe it hasn't really happened yet, but that's kind of the, my, my premise for how this is going to play out. I, I completely agree with you. I think the internet's probably the closest analogy. Um, maybe cell phones similar where if you were, if you think about it, like as a company say, well, uh, you're almost a, a company in almost any business. And you say, no, I, if you went back 25 years, you said, no, I'm going to reject the internet. I'm going to make this choice to not mm. integrate the internet into my company. It doesn't matter what business you're in. Like you're dead today. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think you're, you're absolutely correct that the average person I think looks at Bitcoin and they're making a choice between buying, let's say Tesla stock or buying gold or, or, um, you know, they think about it in those contexts. Mm-hmm. And I use this phrase, it's actually a line from an old Rush song, you know, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Yeah. And, and that's what they, what I think people don't understand is they're used to saying, well, I can choose to buy this stock or not. If I choose not to, and that stock goes crazy, then nothing, there's no negative really ramification to me. Other people did well, but I didn't do worse. But Bitcoin mm-hmm. is somewhat unique in that. I should say unique because I'd say the internet would be the same. It would be like rejecting the internet. Like your decision to not participate is so massive. It's like when I do a lot of public speaking, I'll, I have a chart I usually throw up toward the end. And I have seven scenarios, seven future kind of economic scenarios for the world. And on the left is basically the status quo continuing on into CBDCs. And on the right, number seven is Bitcoin is the global reserve, you know, asset of the world. And five points in between. And then say, you know, and, and, and I'll have a recommended level of <clears throat> investment for people from 1% to like 30% based on that, those seven scenarios, you know, but I'll, I always say like, Hey, if you hate everything I've said, please, please on the chance that I'm right and you're wrong, go, go by 1%. Just because, because I think somebody taking 1% protects themselves. If you look at like what a FOSS talks about, or, you know, some of those about, being a, a CDS and those sort of things, you've at least provided that level of protection. Um, and it's, I think it's the only thing monetarily that that's the way, like, I like think you have to be in. I have this little website, it's called um, satsperperson.com. And, and this very topic <laughs> intrigued me going back several years. And I said, well, if you take all the people of the world, which is now 8 billion and you divide the current supply of Bitcoin, you know, how many, how many Bitcoin are there per person? You know, and it, I, I, um, I didn't look at it today. It's somewhere like 237 or 238,000 sats per person. Um, it's just a little metric thing. But, you know, what I'll say is that that number 0.00238 or whatever, that number is one person's share of Bitcoin. and you got to at least have that, right? Like if you don't right. have at least that, which um, I, I don't know where it is today, 80 bucks or something like that. I, I didn't look at it yet, but it's something like that. You can secure your position. And then every multiple you get of that, you know, you're basically taking another person's share. 
So, you know, what I'll say is if you, if you own, if you own that, you own one person's wealth. If you own one Bitcoin, which is, I think about 420 Bitcoin, uh, 400, I call that a sat cap, by the way, I'll back that up. So I call that term a sat cap. So if you own one sat cap, you have one person's share. If you own one Bitcoin, you have about 420 sat caps. So mm-hmm. that's like the wealth of a village. And if you own 10 Bitcoin, that's like the wealth of 4,200 people, like the wealth of a town, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so on. You know, so you could say like, if you, if you own a hundred Bitcoin, you know, you own like the wealth of a metropolitan area. It's just, a, in my mind, it's just a matter of time. So, you know, secure that. And, and uh, like when I was down in El Salvador, my wife happens to be originally from the Philippines and not everybody there has the same means, but even a relatively poor person in there can go get a sad cap. Like if they, if they work at it, they can, you know, and, and that's big for them, right? If you're, if you're a, a, a person in a less fortunate situation in a place like Manila, if you, if you can go get one sad cap, you're, that's way better off than you are today. Like, you know, mm. cause I think the, the world average right now is, um, I just did this based on a credit Suisse study of household income, the average household, the average person has a net worth of about $50,000 globally. So obviously the average person in Manila or San Salvador doesn't have that. So if they can go out and get a couple sat caps and get their unequal share, that's, that's generational changing. That's life changing. That, that's a, you know, that's a, an opportunity that, that um, probably they would never have dreamed they would have had under normal mm-hmm. circumstances. Totally. Totally. And it's so, it's so great to see. I mean, obviously there were, there's massive whales, mostly from developed markets that were libertarians or cypherpunks early on, saw it, bought a whack for like a thousand bucks and they're whales. But, uh, and I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily bad because unlike, you know, the legacy system, you can't renew your position at the top just by virtue of being close to the spigot. If you want value, you have to give your sats to somebody else who's providing that value. And in this way, they're distributed in a far more fair manner and that the hierarchy of people's sats caps is more merit-based and it can't be made, you know, and, and it's fair by default. But what I love to see is that by virtue of Bitcoin's qualities and what it permits and how easy it is to opt into and, and how it promotes things like freedom, because you can take your Bitcoin as an idea in your head and cross a border or extricate yourself from a authoritarian regime or something. Sats are finding their, their way into the, I was going to say hands, but into the heads possibly (laughs) of, of the lesser served populations all around the world. You know, I just came from the Oslo Freedom Forum in, uh, in Oslo last week, where we heard stories of activists from all over the world that were using Bitcoin to insulate themselves from just horrible inflation by virtue of, you know, a currency being imposed upon them or helping them uh, escape from the regime and taking their wealth with them. Or, as you said, people in these markets that have never really owned an asset of any kind, certainly not one that couldn't be easily stolen or seized from them by the state or just by, you know, regular people. And now they can. And, And that's appealing, obviously, and that's attractive. And so, these people are pursuing an accumulation of this thing that's literally granting them freedom. And what is more appealing than that which grants someone freedom? I, I would argue nothing. Oh, yeah. And and so it's so it's just poetic that 
this is how the distribution is occurring. It's going to those people who need and value it most. And it's almost, you know, a fairness is being brought to the global order of things that's been so imbalanced and so unfair and so stacked against, for lack of a better term, the global South, but what, you know, people that aren't in the, the privileged class, let's say for so long that this is how it's being corrected. It's beautiful. It, it is. And, you know, I've, um, sounds like you've, you've maybe traveled a lot in the world. I I've been blessed to be able to do that. As I mentioned, my wife, and was born and raised in a third world country. And I think it's, it's important. I think it's the hard, the hardest thing for, I'd say, especially North Americans, and I'd say Europeans probably too, is many of them fail to see the benefit of Bitcoin because they're, they've been in such a privileged position for so long. They can't see the problem. And uh, when I, when I do speak, I'm doing a, a Bitcoin meetup tonight. And it's one of the things I'll say to the audience early on is go put yourself in the position of somebody in Lebanon or Sri Lanka, where the central banks are failing right now. Um, go to Syria, think about the Ukraine refugees, somebody in Venezuela, like these kind of places. <clears throat> now think about Bitcoin and, and what it's trying to accomplish. And you're right, it, it, it connects these people to the rest of the world. It gives them, even in, even in places where they're being run by dictators and tyrants, it gives them a degree of freedom and autonomy that can't be attacked. Um, you know, my wife, when she was born, my wife was born in 1970. And at the time, a guy named Ferdinand Marcos was running the Philippines. Um, his wife was actually more famous than him. She was known as the shoe lady, if you remember that. But he went into power in 1968. By 1971, right after my wife was born, he instituted martial law. And martial law didn't come off until 86 through what's called the People Power Revolution, which was um, there was a corrupt election and assassination of his main opponent. And... Um, the, basically, the Catholic nuns led a march through the streets of Manila that ultimately, you know, overthrew the government, got out. But it basically meant my wife spent her entire formative years, her entire childhood, living under martial law, and and um, that always left a mark. It still it still leaves a mark on me. Like, how did that happen? And they, you know, they stole billions of dollars from a relatively poor country um, during that time period. So, you know, how could that be prevented? What could have given the people that were in that time period more resilience, more ability to fight? And, and to me, the answer is obvious. It's Bitcoin. That Bitcoin would have changed so much of, of that history. And obviously that's in the past, but, but there's always one of those, right? Somewhere in the world right now, that same sort of bullshit's going on mm -hmm. and, and it will help people. Um, so, you know, that's where I am. Like in my life, I, I, I mentioned it, you know, I was, I, I felt really blessed to have found myself by just chance. My first job out of college, I ends up in the personal computer industry, which was the cusp of a revolution that kind of bled right into the internet. And when I, in 2004, when I left, and I did this technology incubator and all that, I never felt the same way. I didn't, I, I was I was working. I was doing some things that were okay. They were interesting, but I had no passion. I'll be honest about it. like it just like nothing really excited me. And um, 
in 2017, 2018, when this happened, it revitalized me. So I'm 58 years old now. I feel like I'm so blessed because I have, I have a true purpose. Like I know for whatever years I have left, at least contributing, you know, professionally, whether that's 10 or 15 or 30 or whatever the number is, I know what I'm chasing. I know why I'm doing it. And I'm all for making money. Um, I absolutely am trying to make money, but I also don't necessarily need it. But I have five grandkids now. You know, so my, my youngest granddaughter was born two and a half months ago. She's probably going to be alive in the year 2100. Like what kind of world am we leaving for her? Like what, mm. you know, what will her kids be like? Her grandkids, you know, the, the, it's interesting now to think about that my granddaughter, her kids will probably be alive when the last Bitcoin gets mined in 2140. Like, you know, that's mm-hmm. the chain that we're extending. So, you know, that's why I'm here. Uh, that's, that's why I love talking to guys like you. It's why I do what I do is because this is it. It's a one-time chance in the history of mankind to get this right. We will never, ever get this chance again because the people whose power we threaten won't ever give us another opportunity to, to do this. So you know, as, as a world, like I'm, I'm passionate about nothing more than this because I think it's our only chance. Um, you know, we, we can't F it up. I couldn't agree more with that assessment. And that in particular is what so many people miss, you know, shitcoiners amongst them. They miss that, you know, it's, it's Bitcoin or bust. And we do have to make sure we get this over the line. And to your point about being invigorated, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of people, as you mentioned earlier, and <laughs> it's both, it's both evident and they explicitly say it in so many of the conversations I have. It doesn't matter if it's with like, you know, famous entrepreneurs in the space or plebs with five followers on Twitter it's so consistent that people, when they encounter this and they're open enough and curious enough to try to understand it, and then they start it just over the t- over time, the implications of it start to dawn on them, you know, month by month by yep. month, they see more and more and more of it and it reorients your life. You know, it, it, it's, it's so dramatic in how it, it makes it so clear what you should be striving for, you know, and, and that there is so much to be striving for now that this tool exists. And, you know, for many, they're, making the determination that you, you made, which is what higher calling could there be for my effort to devote myself to than contributing to this. And so using it as a force to improve my life, of course, and also using it as a force to improve the lives of everybody else so that we can be in a better, fairer, more prosperous, more peaceful world, you know, as we move into the future and back, you know, we talked about incentives earlier. That's what Bitcoin does. It aligns incentives. So me trying to be greedy in relation to Bitcoin, let's say, by virtue of the fact that you can't steal Bitcoin, you can't inflate more of it, you can't make more of it at the press of a button. The way you get more Bitcoin is by providing value to other people. And so, you know, you you do that. And if you want to contribute to the network itself, you make it stronger while also providing value to which you are reward uh, as a result of which you are rewarded. And so it's this beautiful harmony of incentives that are coming together around certain core values. And again, I think freedom is probably primary among them. And it's, it's causing this amazing flourishing or explosion of, uh, meaningful work and 
people that are more hopeful about the future and people that see light at the end of the tunnel now. It doesn't matter what your age is. And it's just, it's bringing all these people together towards this, this common goal over aligned values and incentives. And, you know, uh, you, you mentioned your great grandkid being alive, uh, potentially at 2140. And, you know, I think, I think about that time and just, it's impossible to imagine you know, what will be the case then, you know, if, yeah. if we're right about this, man, I impossibly good. And if we're wrong, well, maybe we don't even get there. And which, <laughs> which speaks to the, the stakes yeah. that are, you know, at play here. Yeah. Yeah. We're at such a crossroads. Um, uh, you know, I look back as, as a younger person, you know, we all read the, the 1984 and the brave new world and, you know, all those sort of books. And, mm. um, it was hard to, it was hard to picture the reality of that being possible, you know, of that dystopian sort of world. Mm. And I spent most of my life, I would say, in a privileged position, not really believing it either, that it's really only the last handful of years where the reality of all that came to me. And, and that's why, like, when I look at, you know, whatever I have left in this life, saying, well, I, I have to fight it because it is, it is almost a good evil. Like, you know, I can't go to my grave having ignored this. If I did, you know, that's, that's just a wasted life. And for whatever reason, you know, I think I have something to, to add just because of the path I have taken. And I've had talks with, you know, uh, guys like, like Larry Lepard and, and, and Foss are my friends, you know, we're kind of part of the older, the older group. And I think we all have this same sort of feeling like uh, the boomers, which were all boomers as a generation did some great things, but also did some horrible things. And, 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 you know, we, we almost feel this obligation to make reparations for the sins of a generation, whether or not we were directly the cause of it or not, but like, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, to, to your generation, like, Hey, we, we got to do this, you know, and, and, uh, it's hard. <clears throat> I think it's hard for most people in our generation. I go back to that whole thing. It's, you know, the, the generation that, that especially benefited from what happened in the eighties, the nineties and the two thousands and you know, all the money printing and all the Cantillon effect and all those sort of things. It's really difficult for, I think them to look in the mirror, me being part of that and say, you know what? I got here at least in part because of this system. I think, you know, there are things um, I, I know you probably want to get political, but you know, there are things when you, when you see people protest about things like wealth gaps, white privilege, um, all kinds of different social inequities. I think almost every one of those is at least partially, if not primarily rooted in the mo- way the monetary system works today. and. And that I think we'd find there's a lot less to a lot of those things and a, and a whole bunch more to this. 
And I think when we fight, the fight that we're, we're undergoing, this good versus evil thing, it's interesting because the people primarily fighting those things, like wealth inequality or white privilege or whatever it is their mantra is, seem completely um, closed to changes in the monetary system. And I, I find that gap very inconsistent. But I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm probably very libertarian. So I'm not, I, I, I see things both on the right and the left that bother me. But I think that's a huge problem. Like, how do we open these eyes? Like these people that I think, I'll give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, your, your heart's in the right place. You want to fix these problems. But when you close your mind to the potential solution, because it, you know, what I, it, to me, it, it says, well, you're, you're, you're unwilling to give control. Like that, that's what it, it makes me then question them. <laughs> like if I start from a premise, like you're all in a good place. And then I say, well, here, we'll fix the money. We'll fix the world. Staring what Larry Lapard likes to say, you know, and then when you close your mind to that, it makes me question whether or not that's really what you're, you're after. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with that assessment. And again, like I, I think there are a lot of well-meaning people that look out on the world and see the imbalances and one, they are more inclined or more, uh, instinctively address the symptoms rather than seeking the root cause of the problems. But to your point, I think many times the motivation is not necessarily to resolve the problem, but to be in the position of power that they feel they've been on the opposite end of, and then to exert power, which is, you know, this is, you've seen that so many times in history, which is why when you say, look, we can resolve the problem of the power imbalance or at least dramatically Im improve it rather than, you know, ping ponging who has the power, who's the victim, who's the oppressor back and forth. We can go, uh, we can make a lot of improvement on kind of eliminating the space between the two at balancing things out. A lot of times they go, well, I'm kind of committed to getting the power and being, being, <laughs> being the one with the power rather than being the victim. That's kind of where I'm headed. And yep. so per perhaps for that reason, they're not so open to, you know, hearing arguments about fundamental causes rather than, than symptoms or whatever they're, you know, fighting for, yep. you know, and last, perhaps last point on this, but I think it's potentially useful that, you know, you and the Bitcoin boomer class, uh, feel like you have, uh, an obligation to right some of the wrongs that your generation has been, uh, responsible for. But at the same time, I mean, like you said, I mean, you weren't at least consciously, you know, intentionally uh, involved in, in the making of those problems, nor were most people, you know, we're, we're so wrapped up in these systems and these cultures that it, it's hard to ascribe individual responsibility. So to the extent that it's a motivating factor for doing greater good, then, you know, fine, it's, it's wonderful. But what I love about the younger generation, actually, I shouldn't say that. What I love about everyone who encounters Bitcoin is that whether you feel you're making up for something or whether you're, you know, fresh out of, out of high school. I met a lot of young people at the conference last week, 20 years old. And the motivation is just that it's right. You look at, you look at what Bitcoin represents. You look at what it can deliver to the world. You look at what it can de deliver to individuals. And it's just right. And if you care at all about what's right or wrong, and if you're motivated by those things and being on the side of what's right and bringing more of it into the world then you're going to, you're going to go for it absent any other motivation. And it's, um, 
you know, it's always beautiful for me to see how that, whether it's explicit or implicit, you know, conscious or subconsciously recognized in people, how it's animating their behavior and their character and all the different interactions and motivations they have in their life. Cause it is very transformative. And I think we're only just beginning to see the results of that. Yeah. A- amen to that. Amen to that. And I do, while I, I did talk about, you know, making up for sins of the past, I'm a lot more motivated by the future right. and giving my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids and whoever's out there in the world, you know, a, a fair world to, to live in, to compete in. Um, it's just fairness, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you need to create a fair world and the boomers screwed some stuff up as a generation, but it was really a small group of people really. Um, and the boomers, did some great things, right? I, I, I was blessed. I worked on the personal computer and the internet and cell phones. And, you know, there's some things that progress society. Um, at least most people would argue those were progress, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? Um, so some great things came out of it, but, but um, yeah, at, at this point, it's, I guess maybe to what you said is it, maybe all that's really irrelevant. It's, you know, we can't change whatever it was back there but we can mm. change the future. And, and, um, you know, I, I don't believe in retirement. Um, I actually tried it once at age 35. I lasted 60 days. doesn't work. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm so blessed to have found Bitcoin cause it gave me purpose. You know, I, I kept trying to find something to create fire and, and now I get up every day knowing what it is I have to do. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a gift. It's a liberating feeling not to be uh, tormented by the question of what should I do? What's worth my time and energy and my sacrifice and all that kind of stuff to have a high degree of conviction that you've determined it. Now all the matter is, is putting in the work and, and moving forward. You know, I, I find it a very liberating feeling. Yep. Bob, this has been great love chatting with you. Um, any last words or anything you want to share, um, before we shut it down today? You know, I think we've, we've covered, covered a lot of it. So I'll, I'll give your listeners a break. Just, you know, wonderful <laughs> to, to meet you. And, uh, thanks for everybody that listened to the end here. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'll just say, you know, as an, as an old guy, um, being involved in this, is really the most important thing I could think of. You know, I'll, 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 I'll give some unsolicited advice to those teenagers and people in their twenties. Um, you know, being alive at this point in time is a phenomenal gift and to be able to jump in and participate in this is just phenomenal. Um, so I would, I would encourage you not only to, to buy Bitcoin and stack Bitcoin, but get involved in Bitcoin. You know, you know there's, I, I, I promise you, you will, you will f- search high and wide trying to find something that gives you more purpose in life. And mm. so, so, you know, take your intellectual horsepower, your labor, your, you know, whatever you've got and, and put it at Bitcoin. You won't be disappointed.
Yeah, I strongly second that advice. Um, and Bob, I want to thank you for the work you're doing. You know, as we've expressed throughout this conversation, what you're doing is very important for the resiliency of the network. And after all, you know, that's what we need. You know, the network needs to survive and that's a massive part of it. So I appreciate the work you're doing. I wish you all the success and uh, I look forward to talking again at some point in the future. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. All right, brother. Take care. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop. If you'd like to hear more from Bob, follow him on Twitter at Boomer underscore BTC and visit barefootmining.com to get more information about their work. Don't forget that if you send Boostergrams to us in your podcasting 2.0 app, you can also include a message that will show up on the applicable podcast episode page of the ct.io website. So shoot us a message if you have any feedback you'd like us to see. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.